0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Changing Faith podcast. This is the third installment of responding to your questions. So thank you for sending in questions, both uh, through email and uh, through Instagram. I tried Instagram this time and got some great uh, questions from you. So thank you for that. One thing before we get started that I want to tell you about, if you are in the Denver area or if you're visiting and it happens to be the second Sunday Sunday, of the month. One thing I've started doing uh, between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. at our Denver Community Church Wash Park location in, a, in the chapel is a time to come together and, it, and do some um, e- exploring, some digging. It begins with your questions. We put them, as many as we can, up on a whiteboard, and then we go from there. And uh, one of the things I loved about this last time is as much conversation happened between people as it did between me and those who were there, that there was just a ton of discussion and digging and learning together and insights that came from those who were present that were just brilliant. So I would love to invite you to that second Sunday of every month uh, between 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., which means our next one is May 12th, and again, we meet at Denver Community Church, Wash Park, in the chapel. Someone just asked me, they said, "What are you calling this thing that you do on Sunday nights?" <laughs> and I don't know. So maybe you have a good idea for what we should call it. You can email that to me or DM me on Instagram. Maybe that will, maybe maybe we'll name it something. Who knows? But with that said, your questions. But before we get to your questions, let me offer a little bit of a disclaimer there's something about responding to questions that can be tricky. And here's why I say that. It can feel as though you ask a question and I answer the question and then we move on to the next question and then there's the next answer. And it can feel weird from my end to um, fancy myself as someone who just has all the answers to all the questions that you ask. And it might feel weird on your end that, I assume I have the answers to the questions that you're asking. And I've, I've said before, I'm always leery of people who pretend to have all of the answers. And so my hope in, in doing this on this episode, and as I've, we've done now a few times, is to respond to your questions rather than answer your questions. Years ago, a friend of mine who, by the way, is way smarter than I am and probably could answer every question asked him, said to me, you should, you should not do a Q&A, you should do a Q&R. and a question and answer, Q&R, question and response. And although he has the power to answer questions, he suggested a response is actually what get things, gets things moving. It moves the conversation forward, whereas answers can sometimes be the end of the conversation. And uh, I mentioned this because my hope would be that this would move conversation forward and not end it. And maybe we will come through this experience together today to ask better questions that will lead us further and lead us deeper as a result. So with this in mind, your questions, disclaimer over. The first question I got that actually kind of made me laugh um, and then made me feel like, oh, people actually care about... (laughs) Things that I'm doing, someone just said, "How was your time in Israel?" And I realized I haven't spoken about our time in Israel publicly from the platform at Denver Community Church or on the podcast. So, how was my time in Israel? It was spectacular. One of the things I'm seeing and learning um, is that people go to Israel, and there's an unspoken expectation. That by seeing the sights, by going places, by walking where Jesus walked, by um, having this concrete experience, that maybe some, some things will be firmed up in their mind. Maybe some questions will be answered. Maybe they'll understand this or that. And one of the things I, uh, I watched, and I've seen this now um, in the last two trips that we've taken, is people end up realizing and seeing how much we all don't know. And so it's like we go expecting to find answers to our questions. And what happens is we realize that we, we just have more questions. And it creates this deep curiosity in people that seems to lead them toward exploring more. Maybe you're listening, you're thinking, oh my goodness, I have to go. Good, yes, go. Uh, 2021, uh, so just about two years from now, we will do another trip. Uh, I, I've led two trips now with my good friend, Kent Dobson. Kent and I have been friends for 30 years, and it is so much fun to lead alongside him. I learned so much from him. He's got such a depth of knowledge regarding the land and Israel and history and Judaism, and we're, we're going to try to do a trip every other year. So 2021 there's already like two dozen people that have told me they're starting to save up money to go. Um, so we would love for you to do that. The, the dates will come out uh, in the next six to 12 months, 2021. And um, one of the things, by the way, for me that I experienced personally is when you're leading a trip to Israel, people will often come up to you and say, well, hey, what's that over there? Or what's this teaching about? Or what does this word mean? Or what happened here? And it felt like there were 100 plus questions asked of me every day. And I found that my most common response to the questions was, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. That's a great question, I have no idea. And I found that there was some sort of liberation and freedom in saying that. And not only that, but when I would say, I don't know, it would make me curious. And make me want to go and learn and study more and look something up. And, and so to be able to walk with people, not as like the expert, but as this fellow sojourner and fellow pilgrim on this pilgrimage in Israel was just so freeing and so enjoyable. So I cannot wait to, to lead more of these trips, maybe with some of you who are listening. So thank you for asking about that. Uh, next question. So this one came from Instagram. And it referred to my teaching on Easter yesterday. And it said, you talked about heaven and hell in your Easter sermon. Care to elaborate? (laughs) Yes, we did talk about heaven and hell. And uh, I talked about, I made a passing comment. And this is what what the, on the Instagram, they, they talked about that. I made a comment about our modern notions of heaven and hell are not what was in the mind of the biblical writers and that it actually came from the mind of Socrates, the pen of Plato, and the poem, uh, the Divine Comedy of Dante, particularly Dante's Inferno. And um, so this, is, this gets, I want to say, to how we read the Bible. Um, it's fascinating to me that in the world I grew up in, we treated all of the descriptions of heaven as... I would say metaphor, picture, not literal. Let me say it that way. So, you know, heaven's like 144 miles high and deep and wide. And there's all these things that John sees in the book of Revelation. Everyone's like, oh, that's just like this picture. Like are the streets really gold? I don't know, maybe. Uh, Are are there, is there really gates that are pearls and all these other things? And so it was interesting to me that we had this sense that like the, heaven was, was not necessarily literal, but the same couldn't be said of hell. Hell was incredibly literal. And so when people would talk about hell, uh, there was this sense that like it's dark, but there's fire. So it must be this different kind of fire that doesn't give off light, but still gives off intense heat. And it has to give off intense heat because it's going to be burning people alive. There's going to be the words where eternal conscience, conscious torment for these individuals. And so they're gonna experience this pain and there's going to be screaming and weeping and gnashing of teeth because after all, this is what Jesus says. And then it's an abyss. So you're probably gonna be falling eternally and have this like sense where you're, you have no idea where you are in space. And it's just gonna be this like torment. And it was very, very, very literal. And what happens when I say it gets to how we read the Bible, when we hear Jesus talk of use the word hell, he's actually talking about Gehenna, which is a valley to the south side of Jerusalem which was a garbage dump and where they would throw crucified bodies and there was kind of this perpetual fire that was burning there. So he's giving an image, but he's using a metaphor for basically this, this life in this world that's resistant to the life and the love and the light of, that, that you find in the divine, that you find with God. And, and so we hear Jesus say hell and immediately we import all of our understanding of hell into his words. We, we read the book of Revelation and we import hell into everything that John is saying. And so what I talked about yesterday was that in the mind of the biblical writers, our modern notions of heaven and hell, that, that, was not, that wasn't even in the, the consciousness of a first century Jewish person. And it, it's, it's helpful to realize how much we do this, how much we apply our understanding and meaning and just assume this is exactly what the biblical writers Are talking about, and so, like in Luke chapter 16, for example, there's the rich man and Lazarus, the parable that Jesus tells. The rich man or the 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 um, Lazarus dies and is carried to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man dies and is carried off to a place of torment, Hades. What's interesting then is that Jesus tells the story as though these Abraham and the rich man are having a conversation which raises the question, like, are they communicating between hell and heaven? Well, if you understand the first century context, no, they're all in the same place, the realm of the dead, and they're having this conversation. And what had happened is, in the Old Testament, you'll find no reference to eternal blessing that we would call heaven and eternal punishment that we would call hell. There's just the realm of the dead. But over time, As things and ideas developed, there became this idea that like, yes, it's all Hades, but there's the preferred side of Hades, the good side of Hades, and the bad side of Hades. And this seems to be what Jesus is talking about, that they're in the same place. And yet there's one place that seems to be a little bit better than the other place that seems to be torment. And so they're having this conversation. But when we import our ideas into the Bible, we we can actually find ourselves moving away more and more and more from what was in the mind of the biblical writers, and so I want to let me give a suggestion about um, how we read the Bible. I think something that can be helpful is first just to be honest about the lenses that we come to the Bible with. What do we import into the Bible? Um, And one of the ways that we can wake up to this is simply by asking ourselves the question, why do I believe this? Like, where did this belief come from? What informs this belief? And so, for example, with, with heaven and hell, the question that was asked, many of us believe that our beliefs regarding heaven and hell come straight from the pages of scripture, but the struggle with that is, it wasn't in the mind of the biblical writers. So how are we developing these ideas from the pages of scripture? And I'll tell you what, if you go to any belief statement of any evangelical church or institution, they have a lot to say about heaven and hell. And they they have Bible verses galore to back it up. But again, the question is, where did we get these ideas from? Because... <laughs> They're not in the minds of the biblical writers. And just asking that question allows us to be a little bit more honest with regard to what we believe and how we believe and how we hold our beliefs. And what I'm learning uh, in my own journey is the more that I get curious about where do these beliefs come from and how did they generate and how how do we hold them and where did we pull them from? Um, the more I find myself digging more deeply into church history, into the Bible, into history itself, civilizations, literature, and it's, it's helping me so much understand uh, who I am, what our world is like, what our world's about, the heart of God, all these things. And so let me just encourage you with that, maybe beginning to dig in, because I think if we do this, we can better understand our world, our faith, ourselves, and it will continue to evolve and be reshaped and be healthier. Um, and so that, that's, hopefully that's helpful with regard to an understanding about the afterlife, heaven, hell, Hades, S.H.I.E.L.D., the realm of the dead, all of those fun <laughs> things to read about. Uh, someone sent in a question that said, what led you to change your mind in the LGBTQ conversation? You know, I literally had a conference call earlier today with a friend about this very thing. Uh, Someone, uh, my my friend Matthew Vines leads a great organization called the Reformation Project. And we had a long conversation about this very thing. And um, this question actually came from a pastor. And one of the things that I find so heartening and so encouraging is so many pastors are Really wanting to sort through this incredibly important conversation, and I speak with pastors all the time from around the country, on average of once a week, literally one time a week, where they've said, "Man, I'm I've shifted on this. I've changed my mind regarding this. Uh, I'm I'm I don't know how to even bring this up with with our leadership, with our staff, with our elder team, with our congregation, but it's worth noting." There are far more people on the platform every weekend who are learning to embrace the LGBTQ community, who have long embraced um, those who are non-affirming. And and they're they're trying to work through it. And so in some ways it's heartening, in some ways it's discouraging. It's like, man, you just gotta go for this. Uh, And then in other ways you realize, what does it look like to, to lead people through a process that, that, the, that we've gone through, that I've gone through. And so often, if you just demand that someone get to where you are, like right now, you deny them whatever process you've gone through. And so for me, when it comes to these conversations with pastors, I'm always thinking about what led me to change my mind. Uh, one of the first things that really began to hit me was a teaching that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter seven in the Sermon on the Mount parable. And he's actually talking about how do you know when there is a teaching that is good, and how do you know when there is a teaching that is bad? How do you know false teachers from true teachers? And in this uh, in, in this teaching, what he does is he uses the image of fruit. In other words, what is the um, what is the fruit of their teaching? And he says here's how you'll know whether someone is a true teacher or a false teacher. Here's how you know whether someone's a good teacher teaching the things of God or a bad teacher teaching things that are not of God. You will know it by the fruit their teaching produces. And he says, and a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit and a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. In other words, good teaching doesn't lead people toward bad things. And bad teaching doesn't lead people toward good things. And he says, a bad tree bears bad fruit. And when a bad tree bears bad fruit, you cut it down and throw it in the fire. And I point, out, point this out because uh, as I began my process, I realized that the fruit of the teaching w- with regard to LGBTQ and how the church has held this uh, conviction and how the church uh, how this teaching has led many in the church to respond to and treat the LGBTQ community, I'm like, the fruit is not good. I mean, every bit of research shows uh, that LGBTQ kids who grow up in the church are eight times more likely to kill themselves. Uh, every LGBTQ person that I've spoken with who's grown up in and around the Christian faith has had some sort of struggle with suicidal ideation. I mean, it. it, it there it's just not bearing good fruit. And so that was the first thing for me is that initially it was man we have to rethink the way that we're we're approaching this. We we have to rethink about how we're talking about this. This the second thing and this was really what led me to start really diving in and studying this is there's a great story in Acts chapter 10 about Peter, the disciple of Jesus who has this vision and the vision He figures out, you can, I'll say what Richard Rohr says. Richard Rohr always says, don't believe me, just go read it for yourself. Uh, But the the vision is an interesting one to say the least and leads Peter to go to the house of a Roman centurion, which may not sound like a big thing, by the way, um, but it is a big thing because within some, uh, among some Jewish people at the time, they would have said, it is against scripture. It violates scripture to go into the house of a Gentile, because it's an unclean place. Which is why when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius, the the Roman centurion, he says, when he walks in, you know it's against my law, you know it's against Torah, you know it's against the Bible is really what he's saying for me to be here. And he said, but I, I realize I shouldn't call anything unclean that God has called clean. He's saying this in reference to his vision. So he goes there, he preaches to them, talks to them, has a conversation with them. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles that are there. And Peter stays with them for a bit. He heads back to Jerusalem after. And the leaders of this Jesus movement are not happy with Peter because he's gone against scripture. Now think about this. Peter is relying on a vision, which really the word is like a a trance or like an ecstatic moment. And the Holy Spirit showing up, The, the, the divine mystery, the wind as Jesus refers to it. No one knows where it comes from or where it's going. Um, it kind of does what it wants. And he's, he has those two things versus the Bible. And he says to the leadership, I had this vision and the spirit showed up. And in that moment, they celebrate. And Peter says, who am I to stand in God's way? As though like God's doing something, who am I to stand in God's way? And when I read that story years ago, something in me broke. And I had this moment of, I think I'm standing in God's way. I think the spirit is up to something in the church, in the hearts of people. I think about so many of my LGBTQ friends who clearly display the beauty, the love, the compassion, the mercy of God in their lives. And that just led me to really begin to to look into the text. I I did not know why I thought it was wrong, same-sex relationships. I, I just was told it was. And then I began looking into the text, and I realized, if anything, this is not clear. If anything, for people who are like, it's right there, plain as day in the Bible, I'm going to encourage you, Take some time and dig into it because if it was really clear and plain as day, there wouldn't be books written about it, the number of books that there are, which by the way, are diving into the text to try and understand what these words mean because a lot of the words, especially the ones by Paul, are not very clear. And there's a lot that that goes into that, Uh, especially a lot of background that we often don't offer to these verses that we would offer to other verses that Paul writes. And so as I began to dig in and saw that there was a tremendous lack of clarity, that it seems as though Paul is speaking about something other than what we see in our world today, consensual, loving relationships, it, it began to make me say, man, this is this is unbelievably unclear. Uh, and then the other piece too is we need to remember this is not a theological conversation. This is a human conversation. And it's not about ideas. It's about relationships. It's about flesh and blood. It's about love. And so one of the things I did is I began to sit and to listen and learn and be curious. And as I heard the experiences, the study, the the stories, the background of real life human beings, it, it ultimately served to change the way that I uh, approach this conversation. And uh, so that would be I would say a very quick snapshot of my process that unfolded in my life over a number of years. Uh, Okay, let's see here. Oh, okay, there's two questions by the way I put together and maybe I shouldn't have put them together, but I did. So one is, how do I talk to people about issues in our world today when I know that we disagree? And the other one says, how do you suggest we move forward from cynicism and deconstruction to joy and building? And I'm not sure they're connected, but I want them to be connected. So I'm going to pretend like they are. Um, First, when I read this question about, especially the disagreement, the first thing I thought of was like, um, you must be going home to hang out with your family. Because so many of us, when it comes to being with our family, and we know there's disagreements that might rise up, you just feel like your temperature begins just to rise thinking about it. Your blood pressure gets a little bit higher and the tension comes in. Um, and I think when we feel that way, that's some of the cynicism coming in. It's the assumption of, I know what you think, and I know how you operate, and I'm just, I'm not going to believe the best. I, I think this whole thing's going to just to, to fall apart. It's going to it's not going to be a good time. It's not going to be fun. That's some of the cynicism that's there. And then there's also the side, and this is the deconstruction of when someone believes something different than you and you're going in kind of ready for this whatever, like this disagreement, there's this sense of like you begin almost planning what the conversation is going to be like and how you're going to dismantle whatever argument they pit up against you. And so there is cynicism, there is deconstruction, there is like a we're getting ready for a collision. And uh, let me say this, I, I think if we're preparing for that before we go home, before we get into a conversation with somebody else, we're already in trouble. Because ultimately what's happening is our hope is to be heard by the other individual. Our hope maybe is to convince the other individual or the person that we're going to have a conversation with, why they are wrong is to persuade them. It's to, it's to get them to see our side of things. It, it, it's At the worst, it's an attempt to be right and to prove them wrong. I had lunch uh, several months ago with, with a person who was telling me about one of their friends that they're deeply concerned about and came to meet with me to kind of load up on ammunition that they could use against their friend so that they could wake their friend up to why their friend is wrong. And so this person's just gushing. And by the way, this person had a really good heart. Like they were genuinely concerned about their friend and really, really wanted to, to wake them up to, to some of the decisions they were making. But what came across was this whole idea of you are wrong and I am right, and if you just sit down and listen to me for a little bit, you'll realize how wrong you are and how right I am, and then you'll change your mind and everything will be better. So as I'm listening to this person talk, I finally said, um, can you, what's your goal in all of this? And this person said of their friend, well, I want them to change their mind. I want them to see it my way. And I said, okay, if you knew someone was getting together with you to change your mind or to see it their way, how open would you be to that conversation? Are you not already going in with your dukes up, ready for a fight, ready for, ready for the showdown? Just You're not going to budge. And we got into this deeper conversation uh, that was really, we, we both found it to be helpful of like the questions being, why is your friend making the decisions that your friend is making? Why is your friend going down this path? And these were questions this, this person I was with couldn't even answer. They didn't know, they just saw what they were doing and were, were like, all the alarm bells were going off, so they were going after them. And what I'm learning, and this is like real time for me, is I'm learning how badly people want to be heard, especially in our current context where everyone now seems to have a platform, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> podcasts, right? Um, People want to be heard, and it's so freaking noisy in our world that I think more and more people are like, no one's listening to me. And the gift it is just to listen to somebody else. So like when you go home to your family, especially if you don't live near your family anymore, and maybe your faith has evolved into a space that your family's faith isn't. So you go home, and there's this immediate tension, and... For so many of us, it feels like, well, my family just isn't interested in, in listening to me, talking to me. They don't see me. I've discovered these things that have really helped me and moved me along in my faith. And yet it seems like they don't care. And yet that can be hurtful. Absolutely. And by the way, if it is, that's a whole other level of work that we need to do uh, because it's hard to be in a place where people seem indifferent to, to you. It's hurtful. It can feel like rejection. Um, but... but I think if we do that work, we can learn to, to ask the question, not how do I talk to people, but how do I listen to people regarding issues when we disagree? Uh, the second question, how, how do I discover joy? How do I build something? How do I construct something? And, and maybe that building and constructing is a relationship. Now, it's really hard to have a relationship where you're always the one listening and the other person's not interested in you. I totally get that. But I think if we begin to start saying, how do we listen to others, what we will find is that the person you're listening to, oftentimes they will begin to feel as though they are embraced, they are loved, they are graced. And what begins to happen is we can understand why people are doing what they're doing and why people are saying what they're saying. One of my first therapists said to me, every behavior has a very good reason for existing. And he said, now, it may not be a good reason to you, and you may not agree with the behavior, but in the mind of the person, and in the heart of the person, conscious and unconscious, there's a really good reason for them doing what they're doing. And if you seek to understand that, you will understand them and their behaviors and why they work the way they do more. And they will begin to say, wow, this person actually cares about me. Because if we're going in just to talk, that that immediately is a barrier. But if we're going in to listen and to understand something in us might actually wake up and move toward that person. So when it comes to like building something, I think the deconstruction, uh, there's, there's a ton of deconstruction today, taking things apart, burning things down, tearing things apart, however you want to say it. I think the next phase toward building something is actually learning, is taking a big step back and realizing, man, we don't have this figured out. Uh, we, don't, we don't have some of the biggest, most important conversations in our world figured out. We need to learn so much, understands so much. And I think so often we're kind of like ready, fire, aim. And instead of preparing ourselves and arming ourselves and learning and deepening our understanding so that we can actually build something that might uh, last a little bit longer, that might actually serve the world a little bit better. And I think this union that can come through understanding in our relationships and this building that can come through understanding in our world Um, that can create a little bit more hope. The idea that maybe it's not all crumbling, maybe it's not all bad. As far as joy goes, one of the things that I've learned that creates incredible amounts of joy, and there's all kinds of research that backs this up, is the simple practice of gratitude. I talked about this on a past episode, that if if you just spend, I don't know, five, 10 minutes every day, just pausing and practicing gratitude, offering gratitude, thanks, Thanksgiving, however you want to say it, to to God, for all that we have and that we have been given, um, you will find over the course of a month that that your perspective on the world is literally changing. And so that would be my encouragement: is how do we begin to listen? How do we begin to seek to understand? How do we get really curious about ourselves and our world? How is it that if we feel the sting of rejection when people are not interested in what we think and believe, that we begin to pursue working on our own hearts and souls before we just assume that everyone else are the ones who are messed up and they're the ones who need the help and everything else? And then how do we practice gratitude? And I think if we can do that, we'll find a lot of joy in our world, in ourselves, um, and really even in relationship with others. So the, uh, the the next question I got, and by the way, this one is going to take a while, so this is going to be the last question, is um, a few weeks ago, actually it was more than a few weeks ago, it was before Easter even began, or uh, Lent even began, we talked a little bit about atonement. And so this is someone, I, I assume, from... Denver Community Church, or maybe they heard the podcast, uh, the Denver Community Church podcast. But it said you talked a while ago about atonement, thoughts? Question mark. <laughs> um, which I assume they want more thoughts. So let me let me say this: atonement is it's a word that's often used, and people think we they know what it means. Uh, NT Wright points out actually we don't know exactly what it means, and he's not trying to be smart or cute or anything else. He's just like we don't know what it, it means. Because even the meaning both in the Hebrew and the Greek don't necessarily agree. And there's multiple ways the word is used. And so some say the word atonement means to clean off or to wipe off or to cleanse. Some say it means to cover. Some say it means to conceal. Some say it means to reconcile or restore. Uh, So there's a lot of different ideas around the word atonement. And the word atonement and the theology, if you will, of atonement usually... Orbits around the cross, and what did Jesus do on the cross? What was like, why did he have to die? What was his death all about? And one of the things I think is fascinating is this none of the early creeds of the church are explicit as to why Jesus died. Now, the early creeds of the church say he did die and he was buried and he did raise again, but they don't say why he had to die, like what What it changed in the world. It just says he was, you know, uh, sentenced under Pontius Pilate to death and crucified, buried, rose again on the third day. So I find that fascinating. It was almost as though like the, the creeds of the church were here are the really substantive, important things that we have to, that we have to hold and confess and, and um, recite together. And yet the, the reason for Jesus' death is is not in the early creeds of the church. The the reason for Jesus' death isn't even in the Gospels. Now, some would point to when Jesus says, you know, that I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And yes, he does say that, but there's so many questions around a, a ransom, a ransom to who, who, who's getting paid off. Some would early on said, oh, you know, who's getting paid off is Satan, but it's really this like swindle. Others said like, it's, you know, it's the ransom for death or for sin or for, so, the gospels are not very clear as to exactly why Jesus had to die. Like he's giving his life for us, yes, but for what reason? And then it's interesting to see that Paul in his letters, he almost never talks about the historical Jesus or the life of Jesus, but he's always tapping into the implications of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And even Paul is not abundantly clear. And I point that out because... Many people assume that Jesus died because God was angry over our sin and God needed some sort of blood sacrifice to be able to forgive sin. And this is just the way it is. And this is what's in scripture. But it's important to remember first, um, that is called penal substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. People call it now PSA, which... (laughs) I'm gonna say PSA because it's a lot easier than penal substitutionary atonement. Um, but, But there's an assumption among a lot of people that this is like the gospel. I've actually heard people say, well, this is the gospel and, or this is the biblical theory of atonement or this is biblical atonement. And it's important to remember that at one time, PSA was a new way of thinking about the cross. PSA was a new theology, meaning it didn't exist at one time. And it actually didn't exist for over a thousand years. And so to say that this is the gospel, well, so it took us like a thousand years to discover the gospel. And to call it biblical gets a little bit tricky because there's anywhere between eight and 12 major theories of atonement that the church has preached over the 2000 year history uh, of the church. And all of them reflect back on the Bible. So it's not this idea of like, there's one that's from the Bible and then there's all these other lesser theories. No, 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 no. All of these theories, all of this struggle to understand has, has existed and they all come from the Bible. If anything, there's a beauty to there being multiple ways of talking about the cross because what it says is that this event on which history hinges is so big and so massive to just try and say it's, we can explain it this one way. It doesn't do justice to the beauty and to the magnitude of the whole thing. And in more recent scholarship, um, there's been a lot of questions around penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, Like did did God really need, like God couldn't just forgive, God needed some sort of blood to forgive. And one of the things that's gotten caught up in, in PSA that I did talk about that I think is important to consider is we think about PSA as um, kind of this idea, we, we connect it deeply to sacrifice. And so we assume Jesus being the sacrifice, that sacrifice then means substitution. But here's what's really fascinating for me when we begin talking about sacrifice and Jesus says sacrifice, we need to recognize that the biblical writers who are using these, the word sacrifice are reflecting on their sacrificial system. All the biblical writers were Jewish except for Luke. The rest of them were all Jewish. And Luke would have had a deep understanding of the Jewish sacrificial system as well. So when they're talking about sacrifice, they're referring to what they understand to have existed before them. And some people say, you know, the sacrificial system was only a a picture looking forward of Jesus. That's what this whole thing was. And so when we begin talking about substitution, then we import substitution back into the sacrificial system and assume that the sacrificial system all had to do with sin and forgiveness and blood. But if you go to Leviticus uh, chapters one through six, there are five sacrifices listed there. And uh, the first three that are listed are voluntary sacrifices. And they're sacrifices that are really kind of a way of drawing near to God as a way of praying, uh, as a way of communing with God, we might say, or connecting with God. They're a way of giving thanks to God in a way of um, basically showing God favor and, and accepting God's favor. It's kind of, it's this peace offering. It's this meal offering. It's a way of uh, kind of the picture is you having a meal with God. There's this intimacy and these are the first three sacrifices. They're all voluntary. You didn't have to do these sacrifices. And what's fascinating is in the first sacrifice that's, that's listed, which is voluntary, has nothing to do with sin, it talks about that when you do the sacrifice, you will make atonement for yourself. And you're like, wait a second, atonement, I thought atonement had to do with sin. Why is there atonement in this sacrifice that has nothing to do with sin? What has to be cleaned? What has to be wiped off? What has to be... Uh, covered over? What, what is it that has to be reconciled or restored? And, and right there you begin to get into like, wait a second, what is this even, what, what does this ultimately really truly deeply mean? Because we always thought atonement was connected to sin. Exactly. It gets a little bit confusing. And trust me, it gets more confusing. There are two offerings for sin. There's the sin offering and the guilt offering. And the sin offering is for sins unintentionally committed, meaning you come across a corpse and you stumble across it and you touch it, which means you're unclean. You didn't mean to do it. Um, that would be one example. You, you're at a friend's house and you eat unclean food. You had no idea what you were eating. You thought it was rude to ask or your parents taught you. You have to eat whatever's on the table and you eat unclean food. So you have an unintentional sin. That's the one sacrifice. The other sacrifice, the guilt offering, um, was a repayment. So you told someone, I'm gonna get you $1,000, pay you back by next week, and you don't. You said, hey, I'll have two sheep for you in the spring because we're currently breeding, and you don't. And so you basically default on a loan. You don't follow through on your word. You have to make repayment. And so this was a way of kind of keeping things civil among people and a way for people to get what you promised them if they needed to. This is what's fascinating. There's forgiveness for those offered by God in those two offerings. But what's missing is there's no sacrifice for sins intentionally committed, which of course raises the question, so if you intentionally commit a sin, how are you forgiven? And if, the image of Jesus' is sacrifice and you have three that are voluntary and two that are for unintentional sins and repayment. <laughs> Where's the sacrifice for the sin that I intentionally committed? Like I, went, I had this idea of what I was gonna do and I went through with it and I saw it through to completion. Where's that? Not only that, but this is where it really gets confusing. Uh, the, the sacrifices um, that we're talking about all, all five of those sacrifices actually don't talk about substitution at all. So what, we, what I learned growing up was God hates you. Literally, I heard that from the platform and from the mouths of so many people. God hates you. God can't stand to look at you. Uh, the only reason God can tolerate you is because you're covered under the blood of Jesus. And uh, the idea was this, because of my sin, I angered God and God and God's justice had to destroy me. But Jesus stepped in he was my, the one who died in my place, died the death that I couldn't die. And now that I accept that, I'm covered in his blood and God can stand to look at me. So God's disposition doesn't really change. He still hates sinners and hates sin and is repulsed by me. But somehow now I'm under the blood, so I'm good to go. Um, but God's still angry. And so it, it kind of creates this weird standoff, this cautious standoff with an angry deity. Um, but Jesus was the substitute. But what's fascinating is this. If you were able to go back to Israel in the time of the temple and you uh, met a God-fearing Jewish person who had just come from sacrificing in the temple. And you had said to them, so let me get this straight. You committed a sin, God is angry and you brought a goat up to the temple and you sacrificed the goat as an altar because that goat died in your place, died the death that you couldn't. And because of the goat's blood, you are now forgiven. They would say, what? What are you? What are you talking about? This is why modern Jewish scholars are continually pointing out that the sacrificial system in Judaism had nothing to do with substitution. There was no transferal of guilt. There was no nothing identifying uh, the goat with the worshipper. And when the when you would lay the hand on the goat's head as as is commanded in Leviticus, it was a way of setting the goat apart. It was a way of making the goat sacred, which is what sacrifice means in the first place. And that's really important for us to digest because all of a sudden now you're like, oh wait, there was no substitution? No, it was atonement. And what's even more fascinating is this, the the, the sin offerings with with the blood that cleanses or make atonement, the blood's not sprinkled on the worshiper, the blood is sprinkled on the altar and on different furnishings in the temple. So now you're like, wait, wait, so the blood that makes me clean isn't the blood that is sprinkled on me, it's blood that's sprinkled on other things? Yes. So how does this work? And then, um, like, what do we do with the intentional sin? How do you get that? I mean, there's all sorts of questions that begin to come up because this is what happens when you go into the text. And one of the fascinating things is, is in Leviticus one through six, there's a lot of things that aren't explained. And people for years have said, why are there no explanations as to exactly what these sacrifices mean, why they're supposed to do them, when they're supposed to do them, what's the occasion and all these other things. And scholars have pointed out, well, one of the fascinating things is this, the Leviticus was written down in a time where people were very familiar with sacrifice. And so to tell them why they're doing this would have been nonsense. You wouldn't have needed to do it because they all understood why they were doing this. Because this was the language of the of the culture and this was the the practice of religion, what were these sacrifices. And so God in his graciousness gives Israel these sacrifices and says, I'm gonna tweak these for you And I'm going to tell you what my disposition is toward you, which is that you can draw near to me. You can know that there is forgiveness. You can know that this is a pleasing aroma to me. You can know where you stand with me. It is almost as though God gives Israel the sacrificial system, not because God needs the sacrifices, but because the people did because this was their next logical step as they continue to move forward and learn more and understand more about God. And for those who are like, whoa, wait a second, I'm not sure it's okay that we say that God didn't need sacrifice as well. It's all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And I pointed this out in the teaching. God wasn't interested in sacrifices. He wanted mercy, not sacrifice. He wanted a broken and contrite heart, not sacrifice. And it's almost as though God's saying, I want all of you. And if sacrifices are another step in your journey, toward me, then I'll give you the sacrifices for right now. The psalmists talk about this idea, God is not one sacrifice. Hebrews talks about, we all know that the blood of bulls and goats does nothing uh, to, to forgive sin. You're like, wait, what? Couldn't we have learned about this thousands of years ago? It would have saved a lot of lives, you know, as far as animals go. Um, and so it begins to really muddy the waters. When you just take the idea of substitution contained in penal substitutionary atonement, and you reflect back on where that idea comes from with just from within the Bible and go, oh, I'm not sure it's there. Now, some of you are like, oh my goodness, then what do we do? What do we do with this? Well, let me conclude uh, with this. There's been a lot of ink spilled writing about atonement and atonement theories. There's been a lot of arguments. There's been a lot of lines drawn. There's actually one person that said, if you do not believe in penal substitutionary atonement, you are not a Christian which makes me wonder what happened to all those people that lived for a thousand years before this idea ever even began to be born in the minds of human beings. But I digress. Uh, but I want to say this. Is it important to understand exactly what happened in the mind and heart of God in and through the death of Jesus? Is it important to understand what was wrought in, in, in the world and in the minds and hearts of humanity and everything? Like, yeah, It has its place, It has its place. But, and this is me riffing now on N.T. Wright, uh, I want to suggest it might be helpful around, even within all of our curiosity regarding the atonement, it, it might be helpful if we took a season to simply behold the crucified Jesus long enough in our minds and our hearts to allow the love that was put on display that we see on the cross, to allow that love to sink deeply within us. We could talk all days about sacrifices and Leviticus and atonement theories and why this and not that and that. But what if we just, what if we just gazed upon the crucified Christ? What if we took, maybe what this looks like is like going to a, Catholic Church in sitting in front of a crucifix and looking at the corpus hanging, bleeding, naked on the cross. And just dwelling on that. And I say that because N.T. Wright in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, says you don't need to know music and musical composition to enjoy an unbelievably beautiful symphony or to enjoy Mozart. You can still enjoy it and appreciate it and close your eyes and allow it to like envelop you without knowing anything about music. Likewise, he says, you can enjoy an incredible, um, cu- you, you can enjoy incredible cuisine and an incredible meal without ever having studied the culinary arts. And he, sa- he says that to point out, you don't need to know You don't need to know everything there is to know about atonement, about the crucifixion to be moved by the sheer love of the whole thing. And so maybe maybe when it comes to this particular subject of theology, we should allow it to do its work on us first. And it's fascinating to me, I've seen so many people in talking about what happened on the cross get angry, get defensive, get accusatory, and ultimately become unloving. And I think if we're talking about the greatest act of love humanity has ever witnessed, and we can't do that, we can't talk about it, in a spirit of love and mercy and grace and compassion and generosity, it's possible that we could articulate the theology flawlessly, but if we can't do it with those things, grace and love and compassion and mercy and generosity, it's possible we might not actually understand the cross at all. And so my hope, in this in this time of responding and thinking together out loud, it is simply that we would begin to see that our questions uh, should be the start of something. My hope is that our questions would make us more curious, that would lead us to more exploration, that would lead us to more conversation, that would lead us to a place where we are more willing to learn and to listen and to understand so that ultimately, we would come to know and we would come to be the love and the peace that we long to see in our world. So with that said, let me say thank you for joining with us again and for sending in your questions. And by the way, you can send them in anytime you want. So until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.